Good morning, beloved. Pray that you've been encouraged in our singing this morning and our praying. Uh, pray that you are encouraged even gathering with one another in the chat this morning. And I pray that you'll be encouraged by God's word. It's time for us to think about what thus saith the Lord. So let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would open your word to us. And more than that, that you would open our eyes to behold Jesus. Open our ears to hear and understand. Open our hearts to believe. Grant us faith this morning as we come to your word. Strengthen us in belief, O Lord, and help us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Lord, give us more of Jesus as we come to your holy word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, our brother Josh did an excellent job of, of teaching us God's word. I hope you remember what he taught us last week. That a true change of heart comes from following Jesus, not from the traditions or the commandments of men. He was in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. Now, in that section of scripture, we were seeing that the Pharisees, the, the really religious Jewish people of Jesus' day, they had a bunch of traditions. And they had been trying to trap Jesus using their traditions. The Pharisees believed that there were certain things that made a person unclean in the eyes of God, like whether or not they washed their hands. But Jesus pushed back by saying that it's what's in the heart that makes a person either clean or unclean, that all the unclean sins, things that are actually sins, well, they come from out of our heart, not by what we put in our body or put on our body. That's where the problem is. And in that sense, there are no unclean people just because they don't follow the traditions of the religious Jews of Jesus' day. You see, the Pharisees' attitude would lead you to throw away people, to treat them as others and dirty in God's sight. But Jesus in the gospel comes to gather people, not throw them away. He comes to gather people and to make them clean. And that's what we're going to see in our section this morning in Mark chapter 7. You have your Bibles, turn there with me. We're going to be thinking about verses 34 to the end of the chapter, around verse 37. And the main point of this section of scripture, we might put this way, that the gospel of Jesus Christ gathers people from the margins of society and brings them to the center of God's kingdom. The gospel gathers people from the margins of society, outcasts, unclean people, and brings them into the center of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is more inclusive of others than certain religious people would imagine or even want. And to show the difference between the Pharisees and the conversation in verses 1 to 23 and Jesus and the kingdom, Mark tells us about two incidents in the life of Jesus in verses 24 to 27. These are two incidents where Jesus encounters so-called unclean people. One is a story of social marginalization, and the other is a story of physical disability. And from those two scenes, we want to think about two points this morning. Number one the kingdom of God includes the unclean other. The unclean other, verses 24 to 30. And then number two, the kingdom of God includes the other, 
with disabilities. The other with disabilities. That's what we see in verses 31 to 37. So look with me this morning in Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast a demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. And she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed, and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be open. And his ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The kingdom includes the unclean other. Verse 24 begins by telling us that Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. The, the word used for went away there is actually a stronger Greek word than the one that would normally be used here. The word is, is decisive. It, it suggests that Jesus is departing the Jewish areas to get away from the rising opposition that comes from the Jewish religious leaders and from King Herod, who thinks he's John the Baptist. He's been trying to lay low. He's been trying to do that for a while. And now he's kind of left Jerusalem. He's left um, Israel and, and moved out into a Gentile area in, in order to do that, to escape for a minute. Notice verse 24. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. So he's trying to keep things on the QT for a little bit. Now here's the thing, the other thing that suggests that Jesus is trying to avoid conflicts uh, for a while. He's been trying to do that for a while. He, he goes, as I said a moment ago, to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Why is that significant? Well, let's let one scholar summarize it for us. He writes this, Tyre, modern Lebanon, which is in Syria, which lay directly west and north of Galilee, was a Gentile region with a long history of antagonism to Israel. The region of Tyre, formerly Phoenicia, had been the home of Jezebel, who in Elijah's day had nearly subverted the northern kingdom with her pagan prophets and practices. The prophets decried the wealth and terror of Tyre. Josephus concluded opprobriously, unapprovingly, 
that the inhabitants of Tyre were notoriously our bitterest enemies. <laughs> this is marvelous. Catch this now. Jesus seems to think it's quieter in the land of Israel's enemies than it is in the land of his own people. This is a land and a people that the religious Pharisees would have judged as unclean in God's eyes. So Jesus is now among the unclean others. He wants to lay low, but the Lord is too wonderful to be hidden. He's too great to remain incognito. He can't hide himself from others. So verse 24 says there at the end, yet he could not be hidden. Then verse 25 tells us that immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, I love two things about Jesus in this situation. One thing encourages me and the other thing challenges me. The thing that encourages me here is that Jesus seems to be an introvert. He does. He seems to be an introvert. Have you noticed that he spends a lot of effort trying to be alone, trying to get away from the crowd, trying to be refreshed, not by being with people, but by being by himself? He's done that throughout the first seven chapters of Mark's gospel. That encourages me as an introvert because it's, it's one way the Lord identifies with me the way he's made me. That is one way in which he, sh he shares in my struggle. But it, it challenges me too, because even though the Lord seeks to be alone, he does not turn away people in their need. When people seek him out, he receives it. He always makes time for people who are in need, like this woman. So, beloved, this means it's good to pull away to get some rest or some peace and quiet, and it's good to make room for inter interruptions to care for people who are in need. To be good disciples who follow Jesus' pattern, we need both of those things. We need a cycle of rest and pulling away, but we also need enough margin to tolerate, to welcome, to engage interruptions by people who have need. Now, Mark helps us learn four things, excuse me, five things about this woman in this passage. Number one, she is a woman. We see that in verse 25. She might be a widow, since there's no mention of of a husband, but that, that's not necessarily the case. But in either case, whether she's a widow or whether she's married, in that culture and society, she would have been marginalized as a woman. Number two, she has a little daughter with an unclean spirit. So she's a parent, and as I said, if she's not married or she's widowed, she's a single parent. She's a parent, though, with a child with a significant disability, a disability that's brought on by spiritual oppression, by, by demonic um, activity. And no doubt, she's now further marginalized because she is caring for her daughter and dealing with this circumstance of, of demonic oppression. Third thing Mark tells us is that she's a Gentile. That's the word the Bible uses to describe all people who are not Jews. It's a word that means nations or nationalities. These are people who are not in covenant relationship with God. They do not have the scriptures. They do not worship God in a pleasing way, but they worship idols. And this area that Jesus is in right now was known for its idolatry, its paganism. 
So this woman is a Gentile unbeliever. And from the perspective of religious Judaism, this makes her, again, unclean. And it puts her on the social and religious margins of Jewish society. So the fourth thing that Mark clues us to with regard to this woman, verse 26. She's a, a Syrophoenician by birth. As we said earlier, the, the Syrophoenicians had been enemies to Israel for centuries by this point. They had been political enemies. They had been military enemies. And so she would have been viewed not just as a, as a Gentile, like all the nations who are not Israelites, but, but sort of the worst of the Gentiles. She's enemies to um, God's people. Her people have been historical enemies of God's people. And she was desperate. That's the fifth thing. She was desperate. That's why she came to Jesus, notice, immediately. That's why she fell down at his feet. That's why she begged him to heal her daughter. Now, from a religious Jewish perspective, this is the last person in the last place on earth where you would expect to find a rabbi, where you would expect to find a Jewish religious teacher, where you would expect to find the Messiah. This woman would be the epitome of an unclean outsider in the eyes of the Pharisees, of the religious conservative folks of Jesus' day. And here Jesus is, right there with her. And notice what he does. It's the same thing he does in John 4. You remember the account with the woman at the well? He talks to her. He does one of the most human things and the most caring things imaginable when someone is facing desperation. He listens and he talks. Now that may seem like an insignificant thing or an obvious thing to do, but again, keep in mind, a rabbi in ancient Israel was never to talk with a woman, especially an unclean outsider like this woman, like the Samaritan woman, like so many women in the Bible. So what Jesus does is shocking in the first instance because he merely treats her as human. He talks to her. But what he does is shocking in the second instance because of what he says. Verse 27 is a very short parable, really. He says, he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. <laughs> you feel that? Ouch. That stings. The parable compares Israel to children belonging to a parent. But keep in mind, in the situation, this is a parent coming to Jesus on behalf of her child. So it's, it almost feels personal or it could seem personal in that way. He tells a story where he's like, Israel is my, are my children. And then he compares the woman and her daughter to dogs. So to our ears, this is a, a shocking statement. I mean, some writers even argue that essentially Jesus is sin here. They're not, they're not like believe, Bible-believing writers, but, but some Bible scholars uh, are on the left, they, they said Jesus is sin here. They said this is racist and maybe even sexist to say this thing to this woman, to liken her to dogs. But did, did Jesus really do a racism here? Did he really think of this woman and her daughter this way? And, and if not... How do we make sense of this statement? 
Let me give you a couple things to, to understand. First of all, understand the context. We've been talking about it already. Jesus has already said in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23, especially verse 20, that a person is not unclean because of external things. It's not what a person eats. It's not how they wash their hands. It's, it's not what kind of clothing they wear. And, and that would include external things like nationality and gender. It's unlikely then that in the very next scene, Jesus would then begin to, to respond to people in such a way as to suggest that he views them as unclean because they are ethnically different or socially marginalized or struggling as a parent or has a sick daughter. So in the context, that reading of verse 27 where Jesus is saying something racist or sexist, it doesn't make sense in the context. Here's the second thing. The Greek word for dog used here is not the same word that's used of like a dirty uh, mutt, like a, like a street dog, like a, a sort of nasty dog, right? That, that word would be a word, kion. Uh, Instead, this is the word used for a household pet, kynarion. So Jesus is not using the word dog the way we sometimes use oh. Men ain't nothing but dogs or, you know, um, that kind of thing. He's not using it in a negative, pejorative, insulting sense. It's not insulting the woman. In fact, he's using a term that includes the woman as a kind of household member. Isn't that how we think of our dogs as our household pets, as kind of members of the family? Some of y'all do, but I don't. Y'all can have my dog if you want. But some of y'all think I'm that way. So it's a term here that it, it implies inclusion as a part of the family. Here's the third thing. Jesus' parable here does not actually exclude the woman and her daughter. It simply sets a priority in God's plan of salvation. It says, let the children be fed first. It doesn't say let the children be fed only. Let them be fed first. So when you read this parable, think about Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul says there that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. This parable teaches that very point. So Jesus is not being racist or sexist with this parable. And this parable doesn't have the same sharp kind of tones that we hear with today when we think about when we might call somebody a dog. He's actually teaching a parable about the kingdom of God and at the same time now testing this woman's understanding. Parables need to be understood. That's why Jesus so often says, he who has ears to hear, let them hear, let them understand. And the question hanging over this text is, will this woman understand who she's talking to and what he's talking about? And what happens next is really amazing. See the response and the reward of the woman. First, the response. She responds to Jesus by saying, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. That, that response shows incredible understanding and faith. How do we know that? By several things. Number one, she addresses Jesus as Lord. She may not know all that that means, but she, as a Gentile, can see that Jesus is Lord. She sees something about him that suggests his mastery over demons, her daughter's health, 
is mastery over creation. Number two, she accepts the, par the parable's teaching. Notice she says, yes, Lord. She does not dispute about God's covenant with Israel. She doesn't come up with some uh, kind of pro-Syrophoenician justification or argumentation about why they should be included uh, first or some other thing like that. The woman simply accepts God's priorities in salvation. Israel first, then the nations. And she says, yes, it is as you say. Number three, her response is remarkable because she accepts the parable's teaching about her own standing before God. Jesus compares her and her daughter to dogs, household pets. And she herself and her daughter accept that. You know, she says, even the dogs eat. So she is not rejecting what, what the gospel says about her standing. She's accepting it. You know, the parallel would be this. When, when we talk about the gospel and a preacher or a Christian says to others that they are sinners, well, the person who accepts that fact has made a giant step toward salvation, being rescued from their sin and judgment. The person who starts to kick and scream about that is actually pushing back against God's assessment of them and pushing back against the gospel. This woman doesn't do that. She says she accepts, she accepts who she is, her place in that parable. Which brings us for a fourth thing. She sees through this parable that God is gracious and generous. She did not hear verse 27 as an insult that shut her out. She heard verse 27 as an invitation that would bring her in, into the kingdom. She says, even the dogs under the table eat the crumbs, the children's crumbs. That, that word eat is interesting. It's used only two other times in Mark's gospel. In Mark chapter 6, where it refers to Jesus feeding the 5,000. And in Mark chapter 8, where it refers to Jesus feeding the 4,000. In chapter 6, Jesus was feeding 5,000 uh, Jewish people. In chapter four, or chapter 8, excuse me, he was feeding 4,000 Gentile people. This woman stands as the kind of transition between those things. And that word eat, you remember from those parables, the people picked up, the disciples picked up baskets full of leftovers, suggesting they could eat all they want. A picture of God's generosity, God's lavish grace. She seems to get that. She connects that. She understands that even where the disciples had not. She knows that the Lord is a provider. That's why she's seeking him. She understands this lesson about the kingdom, that it spills over from Israel like children eating at a table, and it spills over into all the nations who can also eat like pets hanging around the table for crumbs and snacks. To, one, to quote one New Testament scholar, James Edwards, he writes this, the woman is the first person in Mark's gospel to hear and understand a parable of Jesus. The brief parable of the children and dogs at the table has disclosed or revealed to her the mystery of the kingdom of God. She is not distant and aloof, attempting to maintain her position and control. 
She does what Jesus commands of those who would receive the kingdom and experience the word of God. She enters the parable and allows herself to be claimed by it. That she answers Jesus from within the parable, that is, in the terms by which Jesus addressed her, indicates that she is the first person in the gospel to hear the word of Jesus to her. Isn't that remarkable? For her hearing, then, Jesus gives her two rewards. First reward is right here in the text in Mark's version. Uh, he says to her um, that, that you may go your way for your statement. You may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. In verse 30, she goes home, finds her child lying in the bed, well freed from demon possession. Again, demonstrating Jesus' lordship over the physical realm and the spiritual realm. The Lord takes away her desperation. It was desperation that drove her to Jesus, but it was grace that removed the desperation. That was the first reward. Then the second reward, she received Jesus' approval. For your statement is an indication of approval. Matthew, in his version of this account, makes it even more explicit. Matthew 15, verse 28, Jesus says, O woman, great is your faith. O woman, great is your faith. He commends her in, in, in her belief in him. And this woman, unlike the Pharisees, is justified in God's sight, not unclean. Her heart is trusting in God and therefore made right with God. The reward for that then is eternal life in God's kingdom. So this becomes an indication of how the gospel and God's kingdom goes out from Israel to all the desperate people of the nations who would dare come to Jesus. And I wonder if there's anyone desperate this morning watching this film. I wonder if there's anyone this morning desperate for healing, desperate for relief, desperate for mercy. And most importantly, I wonder if there's anyone here desperate to be free from their sin to be free from the, the power of sin, the pull of sin, to be free from the pollution of sin. I wonder if there's anyone here who has seen that their heart is desperately wicked. Maybe have tried various things to change their own hearts, have developed their own commandments, their own traditions, and have sought a righteousness of their own only to fail. If that's you, what you do with that desperation is you come to Jesus. You, you come to the Lord and you cry out to him to take away from you a, a sinful, stony heart and to give you a new heart. A new heart with God's word written on it. A new heart with faith in him as your only savior, as the one who died for your sins, was raised from the grave, is ascended into heaven, and is coming again to gather you and to gather all his children who believe in him to sit at the Father's table. Repent of your sin, put your faith in Jesus, call out to him. He will hear you and he will save you because he loves to be with the desperate. He loves to be with the broken and the contrite. He is near to such people. And if we are those people who trust in him, we will have him as our Lord and God's kingdom as our home. Believe in Jesus. Which brings us to the second scene. The kingdom includes the quote-unquote other who has a disability. That's what we see in verses 31 to 37. 
Verse 31 switches scenes. Jesus turns from Tyre and Sidon, uh, travels to the area of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. He's in the area of the Decapolis. He's making his way sort of back toward his base of operations. Verse 32 gives us our a second scene of desperation. It says, And they brought to him a man who's deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. Now, like the woman, these people are begging on behalf of this man. They are desperate for Jesus to heal him. Now, just as a quick aside, a, a quick sort of application, notice now, it's not the little girl who goes to Jesus. It's not even the blind or the deaf and the mute man who goes to Jesus on his own. It's people going to Jesus on his behalf. I think this is a really good encouragement to continue in a ministry of intercessory prayer. You may have been praying for someone, pleading for someone to come to Christ, praying for someone's healing. Uh, we've been praying this week for Joshua's family members, uh, Adia's family members, and others who are ill, uh, whether with COVID or other kinds of things. That is a ministry that has powerful effect. Keep praying for loved ones. Keep interceding for those who are in desperate condition but haven't yet come to Jesus themselves or haven't yet uh, haven't come to Jesus on their own. So don't forsake that ministry. Don't grow weary in praying for others. Now, notice this man's life. Try to imagine how hard this man's life would have been. He is both deaf, which means he can't hear, and he has a speech impediment, which means he, he can't speak. He may be completely mute or he just may have some other kind of impediment, but he has these disabilities. And these are the kind of disabilities that isolate someone uh, to the margins of society, almost totally marginalized, because not only can he not receive communication, but he cannot express communication in the ways that people, typically developing people, do. And so he's likely on the margins. Now, what would have been his life prospects? What are his chances of marrying and having a family? What, what are his chances of gainful employment? Israel's a largely agricultural uh, kind of society. He, he can't be out in the, in, the, in the fields tending the sheep, things of that sort. Uh, probably can't uh, work for someone else very effectively. So providing for himself is going to be a, a major challenge. He's, he's in a desperate condition. He has significant needs that overwhelm his ability and his resources. Now, this might be a good place to make a distinction between being desperate in the sense of having an overwhelming need and being thirsty. There's nothing wrong with being in a desperate situation. Again, a desperate situation is simply a, a situation where your needs far surpass your abilities and your resources. It's when you're cut off from help. We are desperate when we don't know how else we're going to resolve a situation successfully. Again, it could be a child who's sick. It could be loved ones who are near death. It could be an inability to find work, pay bills. It could be someone that we know and love who's hooked on drugs or uh, in a sinful lifestyle of a certain sort. We want to see them out or we want to see ourselves out of those situations, but those situations have us on lock. They have a firm grip on us 
and, and we grow desperate, having exhausted our, our other means of success, of survival. When someone is truly desperate and knows their need, they go to Jesus for help. They're not too proud to beg. And they're not too embarrassed to let their needs be known. There's a humility that comes with desperation, a healthy humility that, that opens life and opens the situation to the view of God and others that we might find help in our time of need. But now the thirsty, that's different. They don't take their need to Jesus. The thirsty looks to have their needs solved by their own actions, oftentimes independent of God uh, or, or solved through someone else. They, they'll, they'll often do it while, while trying to look like they have things together, but to other people, it's obvious that they're behaving in a thirsty way. Here's the thirsty person's dilemma in the words of a, uh, a scientist called Hans Selle. He says this, as much as we thirst for approval, we dread condemnation. You see the combination there? Thirsting for approval, wanting to be approved of by others, wanting to have the attention of others, and yet dying a thousand deaths that come from fear of being rejected, condemned, put down, pushed off, and so on. That's a thirsty person's dilemma. That, that's why a woman will say, I don't need a man on one hand, and then throw herself at strangers on the other hand. That's thirsty. That's why some professing Christians claim to seek purity in the Lord, but post and click revealing thirst trap images of themselves on social media. Thirsty is the coworker who is so hungry for the boss's praise and approval, they act in ways that really seem like they belong on an episode of The Office. Thirsty is a negative, often sinful desperation that shows itself in over-eagerness, being overbearing, shows itself in a lack of self-respect and self-awareness, a lack of chill that, that leaves a person acting foolishly and without self-control, profligate in its attention to others, trying to satisfy some need independent of God. Desperation is dis different. Desperation in Mark 7 is an attempt and, and, and an urgent response to overwhelming need, as we've been saying. This is an, an, an appropriate response, but thirst is an inappropriate response and an immature response to an unchecked desire. The two cannot be further apart. Knowing the difference could not be more important in terms of caring for our soul. Sometimes faith looks like desperation, but thirst is the opposite of faith, of trusting the Lord and waiting on him. Well, notice what Jesus does for this man. Notice how he constantly responds to people in desperate need. He takes the man by the hand, pulls him aside privately in verse 33. See, thirsty wants to act in front of a crowd. Humility pulls aside privately. This is not about a show for Jesus. It's about love. It's about care. It's about providing. The verses 33 and 34 tell us how Jesus heals the man. And again, one quick aside here. One thing to notice about the Lord, his healings don't follow a formula or a pattern. He heals different people different ways. Here he puts a finger in the ear and 
Uh, other places, he puts mud on stuff. Other places, just a word. doesn't even have to be nearby. does different things at different times. The Bible doesn't tell us why, but, but this reveals that authentic, miraculous healing isn't done by formula or script. Verse 35, authentic, miraculous healing happens immediately when it's coming from Jesus, when it's coming from the Lord. The man's ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Desperate needs are satisfied. Thirsty desires never are. Desperate needs brought to Jesus are satisfied. Thirsty desires never are. When the section ends where it began. Verse 24, Jesus was looking for some quiet place to hang out, but the people found him. Verses 36 and 37, Jesus was looking for some, some quiet still. Don't tell nobody what I've done here, but the people could not stop proclaiming the wonders that they saw. Jesus only wanted to be quiet for a time while he finished his earthly ministry. And then the plan was to, to give the church the great commission, to, to then go tell the whole world about who he is and what he's done. But we just keep getting it backwards, don't we? So here in the text, Jesus says to the people, shh, don't tell nobody, and they tell everybody in their mama. Now, since the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, and since Jesus has given the church the Great Commission, Jesus says, go tell everybody, and sometimes it's years before Christians give a testimony or share the gospel of Christ. We just keep getting it backwards. We're called to now go make him know. Go let the world know there is a Savior. Go let the world know there is a God who comes to his people and rescues his people and, and does for his people what they could not do for himself. He, he atones for our sin. He takes upon himself our human likeness. He, he lives a life of perfect righteousness in the place of our disobedience. And then having lived perfectly, he goes to the cross as our sacrifice, our sacrificial lamb, who has no blemish in him. And on the cross, he turns away God's anger. He turns away God's wrath by satisfying it, by taking the judgment that we deserve. He's buried. Three days later, he is raised from the grave through the power of God. He appears to his disciples, sometimes one-on-one, -on -one, sometimes in groups of 50 or more. And he ascends into heaven where he waits now for his church to be gathered and when he will come back and gather all of his people and bring us into the eternal kingdom. This is the news we are meant to share with everybody everywhere. And what we're reading in Mark chapter 7 is the beginning of that news spreading from Jerusalem out into the nations among the Gentiles who were thought to be unclean, but whom God is making clean through the mission and the gospel of his Son. This is why as a church, we want to dedicate a portion of our budget to international missions, sending missionaries across the seas, across cultures, uh, to places that are thought to be lost and dark in superstition or some other thing, so they can proclaim the gospel. When we do that, we're doing what Jesus was doing right here in Mark chapter 7. This is why we dedicate a portion of our budget to campus ministry. 
We support as our campus ministry, campus outreach, our brother Alex Woods, our sister Kayla Cooper Gamble, and others who volunteer there. We want to take the gospel to the campus at Howard so that college students would, would hear the good news of Jesus Christ and believe in him and be discipled and help to grow in the faith uh, and, and even have their lives reoriented around the values of the kingdom that they too might dedicate themselves to making Jesus known. This is why we invest in outreach activities from uh, Coffee and Convo to the three-on-three basketball tournament in the summers that Jamie and Jalisha have organized over the years. We, we want to be a community, we want to be a church that is a, a kind of community inside the community bearing testimony, bearing good news to our neighbors that they might hear the glad tidings and be saved. So we do things like carols uh, in the hood and, and other things to make Jesus known. We should be doing this individually as disciples, and we should be doing this corporately as a community. We should be doing this as a matter of personal testimony, telling people what Jesus has done for us in our salvation and in our desperate need. And we should be doing this as a matter of, again, corporate proclamation talking about what Jesus has done for our church, how he first of all brought us into existence about five and a half years ago, and how he has began to multiply churches in the planting of um, Jeremy and the saints at Mercy of Christ, and Lord willing, the planting next year of Joshua and the team uh, over in Congress Heights, how he has been supplying our needs financially and, and spiritually in other ways. We talk a lot as human beings, most of us. But how much do we talk of Jesus? How often do we tell the world what he has done for us? And tell the world how may they come, how they may come to know him. So as we finish up Mark chapter 7, I think that's the application we should draw. Let's go tell it on the mountain. Over the hills and everywhere. Let's go tell it. Let's go make it known that Jesus Christ is born. And not just born, but crucified. And not just crucified, but resurrected. And not just resurrected, but coming again. That others might be gathered from the margins, just as we were, and brought to the center of God's kingdom. May the Lord give us grace to be happily desperate in the presence of Jesus and give us grace to be used to proclaim his glory to the world. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, we pray that you would help us to make your son known. And Holy Spirit, we pray that as we lift up the Savior, that you would draw all men to him. And we pray that you would help us to diagnose our hearts, that we might know the difference between a healthy, faith-filled response to our desperation that, that brings us to Jesus and an unhealthy, sinful, thirsty response that seeks to feed on carnal desire or misplaced desire. Help us to know the difference and help us to walk in a manner worthy of your name, we pray. Be our provider. Strengthen our faith. Keep us, O oh Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.